Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening, and welcome to Word in Your Ear. Uh, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here to mark the 70th birthday of Mr. Thomas Allen Waits, uh, which we felt was something that uh, had to be marked. There will later on be a singing of the uh, traditional song, accompanied by marimbas and lambeg drums, which are coming along later. But first, I just wanted to to tell you a little story. Many years ago, and I don't know how many years ago, because I'm a very old man, um, when the BBC ticket unit was slightly less scrupulous about where they allotted tickets to particular shows, I found myself in the BBC television theatre in Shepherd's Bush, as it was, um, sitting amongst an audience who clearly just got off, off a coach party from somewhere in Lincolnshire. And we're probably expecting to see a recording of Wogan. And instead, <laughs> on tumbled uh, the gentleman who we're going to talk about this evening, uh, who, who, you know, in, in guttural, uh, in a guttural voice, promised to share a number of nocturnal emissions with them. <laughs> and I've never been among a more puzzled audience in my life. And I thought at the time, I thought, I love Tom Waits, but by God, he's a misfit. You know, there, there can't be a long career in being a mis- such a misfit. How wrong are they was? Because, you know, nobody has made a better and more fruitful career out of being a misfit than Tom Waits. And nobody has documented that life better than our guest this evening. Would you please welcome Barney Hoskins. Now, Barney, we can't remember. You don't know when that BBC show was, do you? Um, no, looking at the photos uh, before we started this evening, it kind of looked like late 70s to me. 
Well, um, there he was. Yeah. In the days when you could smoke cigarettes on stage at the BBC, you know, yeah. those glorious days. Yeah. When you could probably we appear, were happy then. You could, you could appear, appear on the whistle test and smoke all the way through it on those days. Probably drink a pint of lager at the same time. Yeah. It wouldn't be a problem at all. Then drive anyway, a car directly afterwards. Uh, I, I, <laughs> what was your first experience of Tom Waits as a, as a kind of listener or whatever? I think, um, actually, my first sense of this guy, Tom Waits, was a, a copy of Time Out in about, like, 1973 or something, uh, 74, just, just uh, maybe a review of Night Talks at the Diner in, in, time, uh, in time Out, and just sort of thinking... You know, I knew nothing about the Beats or slouch caps or or any of that sort of piano has been drinking thing at all. Um, but I sort of had some idea that he, he used the word misfit, that he wasn't like Jackson Brown, shall we say. Um, There's nothing wrong with Jackson Brown. <laughs> no, um, and he was on the same label as Jackson Brown, of course. But, I mean, he is the misfit's misfit. And so I saw that picture and thought... Yeah, maybe this has something to do with Jack Kerouac or, you know, the, Allen Ginsberg. I wasn't really quite... And jazz, and I really knew nothing about jazz, so I couldn't really fix him in my mind. And then kind of, I suppose, I really... I mean, this is going to sound weird. I didn't really appreciate weight fully until... it was. It was I mean, maybe it isn't so strange because you can see connections between their music, but actually it was Nick Cave who helped me to appreciate Tom Waits. Um, and there was a time, I, mean, I think it, it was Nick who really turned me on to uh, albums like uh, A Small Change and maybe Foreign Affairs, um, Blue Valentine. And you can kind of understand how the, you know, those, those two artists, I'm, I'm, I have no doubt they respect each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, we're going we're gonna to whiz through the, the kind of key points of, of weights. Um, starting with the, his parents and his background, how would you describe that? <laughs> well, you know, you can really see just by looking at those pictures that these, these are two very different parents, I think. You know, I mean, I always think... I don't know if anyone saw Six Feet Under here. Does anyone, yeah, anyone yeah, see yeah. it? It was just, I thought, magnificent. And... The parents in that, I always think, are a little bit like like Tom Waits's parents. I mean, he was the sort of louche, bon viveur, alcoholic. Uh, you know, he was a teacher. It must be said, but 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 he was a fairly dissolute character as a kind of paternal role model. And Mum Alma was much more sort of straight laced and and. Um, you know, just, Very religious, just, wasn't she? She was. She yeah. was quite religious. You know, these, in a sense, are the two warring yeah. sides of Wade's know, personality. You know, the kind of, the um, yeah, the kind of dissoluteness on the one hand, and the need for actually some kind of order and discipline, perhaps on the on the other. I think I think those those two halves of weights explain a lot. And his father left when he was quite young, didn't he? Quite young. Yeah. 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 It obviously had a real effect on some bit where he talks about. Knowing he's out there somewhere driving a Ford or whatever, and you know, just, just there's a real wound there. Him. Yeah. As 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 with most children of divorced parents, I believe that that, that that there's a deep wound, and I think that there was a deep wound for Waits. And yeah. Mum took Waits and his two sisters down to live in San Diego, so for a period he didn't really even know what Dad was doing. Dad would sometimes come down from Los Angeles, 
pick them up and then take them into Tawana over the border. And, oh, yeah, and, and, and Tom would sit on some... sounds fun. <laughs> well, now you wouldn't take anyone into Tijuana, but even then it was a fairly sort of lawless place. And um, Dad would just get drunk in the bars there and sing with the sort of ranchera musicians. And the kids would have to find their own way back to the motel. <laughs> I mean, so... Um, yeah. So did this make them particularly resourceful, independent people? Seriously? Um, in seriously, I think... I can't speak for... Tom's sisters. Um, one of them is is really completely unknown. No one really knows anything about her, other than she's worked in politics, I believe. But Tom, I think, yes, in his way, did become a pretty resourceful character. You know, he's a he's a really I would say he's a really strong human being. He has an extraordinary kind of inner strength. Right, right. So um, this is him. How did he get on at school? Well. Was yeah, I, I mean, I th- I, he was not your typical kind of high school jock, for sure. Uh, I think he felt pretty out of place there. Um, and, you know, already he was getting interested in a life outside of sort of bourgeois norms, you know. Um, and you talk about him being acting and wanting to be much older than he was. You know, you talk about his, with his teenage friends and he goes to their houses and he, he, he fraternises with the parents. And, and dresses much older, doesn't he? I think it's in bell bottoms. Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating time. aspect yeah. of Tom's early life, and, and partly it's about wanting to maintain some kind of bond with his dad, but it's also a reaction against sort of everything we associate with the '60s. You know, and, and I remember he said to me once, "Where everyone else was going, if they were all heading off to some free festival, uh, I was going the other way." Yeah, you know, and he, although you know. His hair grew relatively long, as everybody's did, or most people's did in that time. He didn't want to be part of either the, the sort of the summer of love, the psychedelic revolution. Did no interest at all. He he wanted, yeah. I mean, he would talk to his his parents' friends about their Frank Sinatra records and about car insurance and things. <laughs> about car insurance. <laughs> I think you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he was like a sort of little father time in some yeah. ways. I think struggling to find. Find, find out who he was, yeah. really. We're looking at a montage here of various mm. people who've been kind of inspirations or heroes of his. Mm. Tell us about a few of these. Little uh, James Brown we're looking at. Yeah, here. well, you know, there's this just fantastic story about Waits going to see James Brown, um, I think in San Diego when he was a teenager. In a, So we're talking about 63. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, for him, it was like a religious experience. And I think he's continued to pay. I mean, just the showmanship, the drama, the incredible syncopation, it was just utterly thrilling to him. And he's continued to sort of pay homage to James Brown throughout his life. I mean, he's done versions of Papa's Got a Brand New Bag on stage. There's, there's amazing tracks which are just clearly channeling James Brown, the famous flame. So, so a, big, a big moment for him was seeing that. Ray Charles, well, so when he worked the famous pizza place in uh, National City, which which was a sort of adjunct city to San Diego, uh, on the jukebox was um, Ray Charles's I Can't Stop Loving You. And so, we're talking 62, you know, he was obsessed by that record and would play it again and again and again. And there was something about Ray Charles... So this is a 12-year-old boy playing... 
Yeah, I think very, very young. That's quite unusual. Yeah, exactly. But he he was, you know, Ray Charles was really important to him. Kerouac, obviously he discovered, you know, I mean, like like a lot of teenagers in America at that time, he, he read On the Road. And I think beat literature became his portal into a very different America from sort of suburban um San Diego or Chula Vista, which is a suburb of, I mean, you got to remember Chula Vista is only about like five miles from Mexico. So it's an, it's, it's not your typical right. Californian suburb, but it's still, it was still very white bread. And with a, you know, with a buddy or two, he would, what he really wanted to do was, you know, he wanted to get a car as soon as he could possibly get a car. And then he wanted to hit the road and he wanted to see the America that, Kerouac and others were writing about. Right, And right. Lord Buckley you talk about. And uh, Buckley. And, uh, and Wolfman Jack. And Wolfman Jack. <laughs> yeah. You can see a lot of the voice there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wolfman Jack was obviously important. But Lord Buckley, explain who Lord Buckley was, because he's a fascinating character. Well, I mean, I'm not an expert on Lord Buckley. I do have some of his records. He was an extraordinary character. He was like the sort of beat generation's kind of comic slash rapper of choice he was almost like a rapper he invented this kind of this kind of slanguage that he called hip semantic and it was all about you know kind of bebop daddy o it was all it was all kind of slang and insider language and i mean is it was it that funny he called himself lord buckley and he wore this he so is this adopted this persona of a kind of colonial aristocrat, which he was not at all, uh, it's it's safe to say. Um, But I think Waits got a lot of... That would have appealed to Waits. Somebody adopting a character. Well, the very persona. Well, Wolfman Jack was not a wolf man either, was (laughs) he? No, no, he wasn't. But the delivery of these guys, I mean, a a big part of Waits is, is, you know... uh, is when he's almost doing, you know, the, the spoken word stuff yeah. that waits. That's what I was going to say, done. because yeah. has he decided that he wants to be a musician at this point, or is he just wants to be a performer? Or I think after a, a brief moment of thinking he might want to be a photographer, he basically started, I mean, the, the big thing for him in, in San Diego was he started hanging out at, I mean, you'll. I think the next slide might show this, on the left there is a club in San Diego called uh, The Heritage, um, which is really important in the Waits story. And it was where um, not only all the local folkies played, but visiting, you know, we're talking about the great folk revival, so late 50s into the early 60s. You'd have Lightning Hopkins playing there, and you'd have, you know, Appalachian singers. And Tom just started hanging out there as a kid, really, and eventually graduated to becoming the doorman there. And he became this really important character on the door. And it was he was started doing kind of performance. That's fascinating. Yeah. You know, on on the door there. And, and was drawing it, a slightly bigger crowd sometimes than the people on stage, wasn't he? I mean it exactly. became a it, huge more, more, draw. He was more there was more entertainment to be had from hanging out with Tom White outside the club and going <laughs> going inside, I think, you know. And so eventually he, was a teenage, got his he was a teenager at this point. Well, I mean he was uh yeah, he was a late teens right. probably. So we're talking late sixties. And what what did that act consist of? Um, well, he'd often be um, sitting there reading a book and he might read from it. He'd be reading like Kierkegaard and stuff like that, you know. Well, whether just for show, I don't know. But he'd just start doing, you know, 
he, I think he was just really enamored of and interested in sort of street characters. I mean, yeah. that, that much is obvious from, from his songs, really. But he, he would just start kind of uh, trying, trying to um, emulate the way just people spoke on, on the streets of, of San Diego. Um, and, I mean, it was just a naturally really funny guy. I mean, he is one of the funniest but he must have had people I've ever interviewed. He must have had confidence from an early, early age. I think he, I think he that. had a sort of mixture of confidence and uncertainty. And I mean, he started off very much as a kind of Dylan emulator. You know, the early stuff he did was very, very folky. It was very singer-songwriter. You know, um, he was one of the first guys to sing his own songs at the Heritage, because even that, that was still frowned on in the world of folk. You weren't really supposed to write your own songs. You were supposed to. You know, you were supposed to cover to, the classics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, sing, sing uh, Appalachian ballads yeah. or whatever it might be. So he started writing these really um, rather sort of twisted country and western songs. So there's some of the earliest, like I'm Up Shit Creek Without a Paddle. <laughs> and country was quite big. You know, it's hard. You don't think of Waits, obviously, as a country singer in any way. But, but, but he did sing country songs there. And, yeah, I mean, the weight of, like, 1971, 72, let's just say, yeah, like, 71, I don't think anyone would have uh, sort of thought this guy's going to be, really going to be somebody one day, you know. Um, he wasn't a sort of great singer, um, and, and he was kind of cut from the cloth of Bob Dylan like like many were. Did he so, you know So he got he got to do auditions at the at the Troubadour. Yeah, so so basically um the, the the thing that really impressed a lot of his peers in San Diego was that he would take the the bus up to LA from San Francisco uh, from San Diego and most of them couldn't really be bothered to do that. You had to get up at like 4:30 in the morning. And then wait outside the troubadour on Hoot Night. Um, this was an Monday night thing, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And this actually was one thing we were talking about earlier. was like, what does Tom Waits have in common with Elton John? Not a lot. Um, <laughs> but they do have this place in common. And yeah. alcoholism, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, the, but the troubadour, where, as we heard earlier from Alexis, you know, was, was where Elton you know, had, had this extraordinary breakthrough with the Hillburn Review. But that was the place that you went on a Monday night to try and attract some attention. And you might not even get on stage. If you, you did, you were lucky if you got three songs. But he had really two incredibly big breaks there, which was that he happened to get on stage the night that Herb Cohen, who was Frank Zappa's manager and Linda Ronstadt's manager and Captain Beefheart's manager, heard him and approached him. He was also on stage the night David Geffen was there. And David Geffen also approached him. So he got management with Cohen and he got a deal with through Geffen. Right, right. And so is Geffen the way that he... Because I first heard Tom Waits' songs. I can't remember which I heard first. Old 55 was done right. by the Eagles. Yeah. And Martha was done by Tim Buckley. Buckley. Tim Buckley. So was Geffen the person making that happen? Geffen... Well, interestingly, Herb Cohen didn't see Tom as a recording artist. He thought that people might record Tom's songs yeah. and he, he, Herbie, would make money that way. He didn't sort of see Tom as a very obvious, like, star. Um, and he probably wasn't alone in that. Geffen fell in love with the song Grapefruit Moon, 
which was on the first album, Closing Time, and, uh, and, and approached Tom. And then when he heard that Herb Cohen, who was a pretty uh, frightening guy, that's, that's Herbie up there, you didn't mess with Herbie. There were stories about Herbie, and uh, Geffen got very nervous when he found out that, that Tom was being managed by Herb Cohen. Um, but they sorted it out, and Herbie was happy for Tom to be on Asylum. And Asylum was, in some ways, an odd place for... So there's his first yeah, record on Asylum. That's very much the weight, in a sense, that uh, people would have seen at the Heritage. There was a little this upright piano. This is the piano closing time we're looking at. Yeah. With the waistcoat. I mean, it's very early 70s sort of singer-songwriter, isn't it? Harry um, late nights, yeah, Harry yeah. Chapin. I mean, exactly. Um, and you know that could be that could be anyone really from that period from Los Angeles, you know, uh, or maybe even London, you know. There might even be an, an album cover by sort of Gilbert O'Sullivan. But by the time, like, yeah. but by the time that came out, Old Fifty Five had been on an Eagles album, and he'd made just sold money huge that, numbers. That was that was that That's was a huge break. That that was the first, you know, inkling that actually Tom Waits might. You know, might make some money, might be able to sustain. But isn't a that career. also a big part of his story that he he was getting covered by quite mainstream artists and, and making a fair amount of cash, mm. and this happened later on with Downtown Train and all that. You know, yeah. but but so therefore it gave him the freedom to be able to go off and do quite experimental stuff because I he think was that making was, money elsewhere. You know? I think that was probably the idea yeah. because he 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 didn't want to be and he was never going to be a, like uh, a pop star. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's also interesting is that he bit the hand that fed him. He was really rude about the Eagles and about all of those artists that were on a... Everyone that David Geffen and Elliot Roberts had, had signed, Waits was rude about, which, which was sort of Yes, perverse. he said stuff in the press, didn't he, about them? What, what did he say about the Oh, Eagles? he just talked... He really? said, you know, he said, like... Um, he talked about... Uh, the Eagles as if they... They walk around as if they've got, like, horse shit on their on their shoes, and it's just dog shit from Laurel Canyon, was, was one, of, <laughs> one of his little classics. Um, and he was really rude about Neil Young. And I remember asking him about this, and he went, oh, you know, Henley and I have made it up. You know, I was just a young guy corking off, he said, you know, yeah. and we've, we've patched it all up. But the Eagles were, were really not very happy about this, considering they'd made him a whole also made ton of money. money. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, but that's weight. He's yeah. a... He can be a belligerent bugger. Yeah. And I, and I really admire that about him. He's, he doesn't care to be diplomatic. Or, you know, he won't say something because he thinks it's going to be good for his career. And I think, paradoxically, as a result, he's had this incredibly long career because he's never sold out, really. Because he, no, well, he, he famously sued, um, was it Frito-Lay, the snacks manufacturer, yeah. for, for copying its, its style, isn't that right? Waits, Waits has sued many people. Oh, really? Know. I had a great story earlier today. By a, uh, uh, I was doing it weirdly. Today is like podcast day for me, the Dylan podcast, and these two actors have. And one of them was hired to do what he thought was... He thought he was being hired to do Tom Waits. And it was this Japanese company. And, um, and he came and he started... He said, so you want me to do Tom Waits? And they, and they went, no, no, don't Tom Waits, don't, don't do Tom, Tom Waits. No, no, because they, they knew already that this, you know, you, you even think about impersonating Tom Waits and you're probably going to get slapped with a lawsuit. 
He's made more money. I mean, this is what people say, and it may just be a joke, but he's made more money well, through lawsuits, winning lawsuits. <laughs> no, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. For the Frito-Lay thing, I think he got two and a half yeah. million. Yeah. That's there was a couple of moments in the book where, uh, which are fantastic, because Herb Cohen also, as you said, managed to, uh, you know, be part of various people, also managed Zappa. And as, as managers often do, they got one big act going out. Yeah. Well, let's put my other act on yeah. as a support act. Oh, God, And he yeah. went out, I can't remember what he called it now, he said something like, a, uh, you know, an exercise in, 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 in hell or something. There was some expression he had for how awful it was going yeah. out and supporting Zappa's crowd. I think it was, I mean, it's kind of like, if you can survive being... Uh, yelled at and had things thrown at you by Frank Zappa fans every night. If you can survive that, you might just make it in show business. Um, and he went out there just with a bass player, Bob Webb, who was one of his friends from San Diego. And they toured with Zappa and the Mothers. And it was every night, it was just, um, it was torture. I mean, it was just horrible. And, Why did and Zappa carry seemed on to take it? a slightly sadistic yeah, how are the crowd tonight? It gives the lie to the idea that Zappa fans are kind of adventurous souls. You know yeah. what I mean? They they want Frank Zappa, don't they? They just they, they don't really want anything, anything else. else. They just wanted yeah. like uh, what I would call uh, no disrespect to any Zappa fans here, wanky virtuoso noodling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is all Zappa was about at that point. You yeah. know, I think Zappa made great records in the late 60s, but by... There's something... Anyway, yeah, we're not yeah. talking about no, Frank no. Zappa. But anyway, he, he goes on to make a series of records for Asylum, produced by Bones Howe, mm. who was a great Hollywood engineer and used to make Elvis Presley records and yeah. so forth. They always struck me, struck me that there's two Tom Waits as, as recording artists. There's that early stuff, which I always really liked. And then there's what happens when he gets onto Ireland later on. Is, is yeah. that fair enough? I think there's definitely, I mean, in in my book, there's Act 1 and there's Act 2. And Act 1 is, is I think, I call Wasted and Wounded, which is the opening line from um, Tom Travert's Blues, probably his greatest and certainly most famous song. And I think Act 2 is called Behind the Mule. And they are... It's a story in two acts, for sure. Having said that, I think there are things that happen in Act 1 which are pointers to what happens in Act 2. You think of a track like um, Red Shoes in the Drugstore um, on uh, Blue Valentine, and that's definitely a kind of clue as to where Waits might be going. But there's no doubt that this Waits here is a guy who has created a persona for himself, and there's a certain kind of shtick that he does and it and it is like this you know this this um kind of alcoholic loser uh how who, true was the alcoholism i mean it was truer than he would have liked you to think i mean that's the problem he did sort of actually turn into the persona that he had created he became a method acting sort of exercise didn't it he yeah. yeah. did in a way i mean yeah. it, it, it kind of ate him up and i mean he didn't stop drinking till um, comparatively late. I mean, so we're talking maybe mm, early 90s, I think. Um, I mean, he's certainly married to Kathleen for a while right. at that oh, point. Really? And she, she basically said, you know what, you, you're going to have to stop drinking yeah. or, or you're going to have to go, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
How did he? How did he get the musicians? Because a lot of session musicians, particularly on uh, Nighthawks, as various jazz musicians, were still asked about that record today. How did he get those people to to, to play the music he, he he wanted them to play? Because he was quite. They found him quite a strange character, didn't they? They really did. I mean, these are guys like like the bass player Jim Hewitt, stand up bass player, yeah. you know, who, who'd played with with everyone, and Mike Melvoin, who was the dad of when of Wendy of, of Wendy and Lisa, the and these were two like like top LA session guys and they were slightly flummoxed by this guy who was half their age but dressed like he was twice as old as they were you know that 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 was odd and and it, there was a suspicion is this guy a phony I mean Charles Bukowski who is one of his literary heroes thought he was a phony you know and you could sort of understand that there was something a bit a bit phony about this act it was an yeah. act um, but but so what? Well, because it's, it's I mean, like Bob Dylan. I, I mean, it, every well, you know, Wait said. I remember saying to me, everybody's an act. Yeah. yeah. We're supposed to think that Neil Young isn't doing an act, but it's an act. It's everybody's an doing act. an act. Totally you know, an act. Uh, the moment you know, yes, okay. So he's wearing he's wearing a little bit of a costume there, but the thing is, he got really in in he got inside that character, and he made that character emotionally credible, and I think wrote some of the just well, some of the most wonderful songs that anyone has written. I mean, really deeply moving songs. The writing is incredible. He's so funny on Night Talks. I mean, I, I think it's one of the funniest records ever made. He's just a natural comic. But sorry, to return to, yeah, I mean, everything does change when he signs to Ireland. He gets tired of of the act that everyone wants him to do. Everyone right. wants him to be this drunken guy at the Tropicana Motel. And he's chafing at the bit, really. He says, I'm not that... I, I feel like so that's he got bored. He got bored with that, really. So this was... Every interview in the first part of his career, he used to mention the fact that he lived in the Tropicana Motel Hotel in yeah. Hollywood and, you know, kept yeah. off room service and, and whatever. I mean, how true was that? Did he really do that? Um, no, no, he really did, and he really lived this kind of street life. Um, I think part of it was to try and kind of break down this artificial wall between, like, um, being an entertainer and being a regular guy. I mean, there are stories about when he, he would be fixing his car on the street outside the Tropicana, you know, and he didn't have a problem with with people seeing him do that. And I think that's a really interesting thing because, because actually the act and the reality sort of merged into, into one thing. He was also hanging out a lot with people like Chucky Weiss of Chucky's In Love yeah, fame. Yeah. And so he had this little crew of buddies that he drank with and they were all, it was all centered around the Troubadour and it was centered around the Tropicana. And, they were living out, and when Ricky Lee Jones came into the picture, in a sense, they were living out this this kind of fantasy of being so like 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 Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy in a way. That no, was, only that was the it. irony is that Ricky Lee Jones did really well out of it, didn't she? Slightly ahead she, of she, him. Didn't she appropriate quite a bit of his act? You know, that kind of you know the beat thing, the sort of wearing a beret, the kind of dissolute uh, sort of uh, demeanour that she. Developed. Yeah, I, I, there's no doubt that, that she, A, she really fell in love with Tom and, and, and had her heart broken in pieces by him. No doubt about that. 
the Pirates album, which I think is one of the greatest records yeah. ever made, really as good as anything Waits ever did, in my in mine humble, etc., is really all about the breakup with him. And it's 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 a heartbreaking record, you know. I thought she was brilliant. I don't think she ever made a record as great as that again. But they were an incredible but couple. But it must have been a, a, a tension because... It's and that's a bit, Bette Midler, it's, by the way. It's a bit like... It's, he went out with Bette Midler before, which is yeah. an extraordinary story in itself, you know. But, um, he, he, you know, he went out with, with uh, Ricky Lee Jones and it's a bit like... Um, it's a bit like Star is Born to some extent, you know. That, that, it was uh, a bit. You know, they're, they're kind of, he's the bigger star, and she's kind of, and then suddenly she has the hit with Chucky's in Love. Yeah. And, and it becomes a huge radio hit in America. Yeah. She makes a fortune, and then kind of goes off the rails, doesn't she? I think it was a bit difficult for Tom, yeah. because, because Warner Brothers really got behind her. She had, like, the top session yeah. men in L.A., all of them on that first record, yeah. which was almost as good as Pirates, but, but, but not quite. And yes, yeah, she has this massive hit, and 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 even, and even Chucky Weiss is is like momentarily more famous than Tom Waits because of the song, he's you know. Yeah. Mentioned in the song. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What about the relationship with Ben Midler? So she recorded some of his songs. Yeah, I mean, we don't know much about it. I don't think it was a passionate affair like Tom's relationship with Ricky Lee, but they loved. They really adored each other, and they made each other laugh a lot. I think he. Got to know her in New York. He played there's one, one show he played in New York where Barry Manilow came with his mother. Go figure, right? Well, so they're sitting in the front row, Barry Manilow and his mum. And I think Tom was slightly disconcerted by that. But <laughs> I don't know whether it was through well, Barry that, yeah, that he met, well, that he met, met Beth, but quite possibly. And of course, she. Um, yeah, she duets with him on I Never Talk to Strangers. And for a moment, she's considered as a possible voice for One, one from, from the Heart. Um, but also, she's a bit of a self-invented character as well, isn't she? Yeah. You know, oh, she plays this kind of 40s yeah, ab diva. Absolutely. It's, it's an invention. It, 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 it's, it's another persona. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah. and there, So there, One from the Heart, which you, you touched on, you know, he'd... Mm. he'd, he'd, he'd Toyed, he had small parts in movies, didn't he? I mean, I don't know if it was before this, Cotton Club and things like that. The very, this. yeah, um, let me try and think. Um, I think he had not been an acted in a film before oh, okay. but, this. So he gets hired to provide the music for Francis Ford Coppola's Fantasia. Coppola's son. So uh, Francis uh, says, I really want this film, in a sense, to be kind of structured around the music. I want a bunch of songs and I want to make the film around those songs. And was talking to his son, um, do you, can you think of any like contemporary singer-songwriters who might, might be good for this? And I think uh, his son brought in a copy of Foreign Affairs, which had I Never Talked to Strangers on it. And Coppola thought, this is my guy, you know. And um, weirdly, Tom, in an effort to break away from precisely this kind of music, had moved to New York. He was going to just completely change everything and become Mr. Sort of New York avant-garde. He met Jim Jarmusch there and so on and so forth. And then he gets this call. Coppola is interested in working with, he's doing this new film. So Tom has to, it's a really strange thing. He has to come back to 
the persona that he'd created for himself. And that, work in a completely different all... way, doesn't he? Because he's, he's working to, kind of to order, isn't he? He's sort of installed in a kind of Tin Pan Alley kind of situation. Write the song like yeah. this for me. And it was an immensely frustrating experience uh, for him, but also an experience that I don't think he would have traded for the world. And Bones comes back into the picture. You know, he'd sort of said goodbye to everything, and now it's like, oh, <laughs> Bones. I'm back working with Bones again, you know. And... Um, it's a the soundtrack album, as I'm sure anyone who has it or knows it is 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 absolutely wonderful. Yeah. But the single most extraordinary thing about Tom Waits, and I'll never forget this from working at NME at the time. I remember, you know, most of us really liked Tom Waits on, on NME. So we're, we're talking we're talking eighty two, uh, aren't we? Talk eighty two, eighty three. In the space of twelve months albeit the one from the Heart album was delayed, the release of it was delayed. The one from, that album, the soundtrack album comes out, and so does Swordfish Trombones. They both come out in the space of a year. And I can remember playing those two sort of back to back, just thinking, how can one person make these two mm. completely unlike records? And well, I, the, one of the major things was he met on the set of uh, One From The Heart, he met Kathleen Brennan, who has completely changed his life. I mean, it's astonishing, yeah. isn't it? The degree to which she took over his world, and yeah. he became sober, and she introduced him to all sorts of different types of music, and became a kind of creative director. So what was director. her background? Well, her background was, I think she was a, an English literature grad um, and she'd got a job on at Zoetrope, Coppola's studio, to work on, I mean, she was like a script editor on One from the Heart. I mean, really young, I mean, young, younger than Tom. I can't remember what their age gap is, but um, I mean, they just, she just came and knocked on his door one, one afternoon and he just, like, just fell instantly in love. And... Um, I mean, I'm, one of the people I interviewed was sort of trying trying to ask Kathleen out on a on a date, who was also working at Zoetrope, and he said she met Tom. They went up to Napa to do a weekend of work on One from the Heart with Coppola, and when they came back, they were engaged. Right. I mean, it was just instant, and you know they're still married, and they essentially are. They work together, they write together, they've they've built. His the second wind of his career together. And she does she manage him? I mean, would you? No, that... certainly not manage. No, he has a manager, Stuart Rose, and people who work for him. But she's a collaborator, isn't she? I mean, they're right. She is a real and... collaborator. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's a, it's it's a it's a most inspiring thing that, um, you know, that he's such an unusual man because in some ways, you know, he he had this this sort of old. I always remember this. I think I mentioned this in the book. My first real sense of what Tom was like as a person was there was a, does anyone remember a show called Loose Talk on I think it was on Channel Four oh, with I, Steve Taylor? Yeah, I, you oh, mentioned this in the book, yeah. and I saw the, I saw the clip which is on YouTube. Have you seen and it? It's excruciating. It is excruciating. It features a young Ian Hislop uh, who's being who's the co-presenter of the program. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think Steve Taylor presented. Maybe he was the co-presenter. He was the co-presenter. But, but the guest Tom's host. doing his kind of mumbling thing, and Steve. Taylor is asking him questions that make it very clear that he's still pigeonholing him as the alcoholic, alcoholic. guy at the Tropicana, yeah. you know, and Tom is bristling at this. You can, you know, um, yeah, he, so, so Taylor goes, um, do you still live in the seedy parts of Los Angeles? And, and Tom goes, you mean like a farming community? Mm. You know, just diff 
because he's so bright. He's just such a smart guy. He won't take any shit from anybody. And, and he's mumbling away. And his lot pipes up at some point and says, well, you might do rather better if you sort of spoke up a bit. Yeah. You know, if you promote your if, album. If you're a little bit more intelligible yes, or yeah. something. Yeah, and barely ooh. make out a word you're saying. You know? Yeah. And it, it's just... Wait, so it's goes, it's I'll promote my it. album in my own damn way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I remember thinking... More power to you, yeah. you know. But, yeah, these, these guys are amazing. And, I mean, so I don't know how people feel about Act 2 of Waits' life. I mean, some of it is fascinating, but I don't love it musically, or the German stuff, you know, Blood Money, Alice. Do I really love that music? Not as much as Swordfish Trombones, not as much as Mule Variations. or I have to say, I thought the last album he did, which is already, like, eight years old, Bad as me, I thought was absolutely fantastic record. If, if anyone hasn't heard that or just assumed it was more kind of weird shit in a barn in California, yeah. um, it's really worth hearing. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's my gift to you. That's your compilation. A man banging, banging a radiator with a jawbone. Right. There's less yeah. of the radiator <laughs> on Bad as Me. I mean, I love the radiator. I mean, I was listening on the way here to uh, what's it called, Going Out West on Bone Machine. Oh my God! And you know, I mean, there's no drum kit on there. It's like bashing yeah. a fucking metal door yeah. with a mallet, yeah. and it is the best drum sound you've ever heard. <laughs> it's just tremendous. But, but Bad As Captain Me, really, I just think it's a tremendous record. Great songs, beautiful arrangements, beautiful playing. Didn't she introduce him to is it Harry Parch, the uh, experimental um, uh, musician who invented his own 43-tone scale and extraordinary instruments? I think she was, she was the one who introduced him to that. Well, idea. you know, there's a lot of debate about this. Yeah. This is where it gets slightly tricky because there were people who say Kathleen didn't know anything about Cap Captain Beefheart when she met Tom. And to think that Tom wasn't aware who Captain Beefheart yeah, was, say, was well, managed by Captain is, Beefheart. Yeah. Is dark, ma managed yeah. by, by Herb Captain Cohen. Beefheart, yeah. But Tom's line, and maybe it's just to give Kathleen as much credit as he can, is, is was, and maybe still is very much, I was locked into this wino, nighthawks, alcoholic, jazz ballad thing, you know, and Kathleen woke me up. Shook me up and turned me on to all these extraordinary things. And um, so, you know, who knows? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that that record is absolutely out of this world in terms of a kind of self reinvention. I mean, it is, I do think it's one of the greatest records ever made, Swordfish Trombones. And there's, there's plenty more that followed on from there. But just that as a statement of kind of sonic weirdness and sort of um, mutant exotica yeah. is, 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 is really... I mean, Joe Smith at Electra heard it, and he just was like, what the hell is this, you know? And um, I can't put this out. So that's when Chris Blackwell stepped in and said, you know, whatever you want to do, Tom, um, you've got a home on island. It's interesting. I, was, I wonder if he's, he's done well in that second part of his career, because... That was a period where, where most music started to be uh, composed and recorded on computers. Yeah. Whereas you all said the idea that Tom Waits was, every morning was going out to a barn at the back of the place and banging a few things, you know what I mean? And yeah, he's a real Kind of working with his hands, you know? Yeah, he's, and he's got 
you, you have that feeling like yeah. callous manual <laughs> labour. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I mean, does he really? I don't know. Well, I mean, they live in the middle of nowhere in Northern California. You know, they very consciously made this decision to get out of an urban environment. I mean, he has become. I mean, that that sort of says it all, really. He's just sort of. I mean, what does he look like there? Like some kind of weird combination of Johnny Cash and, I don't know, Brad Dourif in Wise Blood or something. But, I mean, that's how one thinks of him now, you know, um, as this primitivist. I mean, and he was one of the few artists in the 80s, you know, who wasn't using the new technology and drum machines and sequences and MIDI keyboards. And he sort of took this stance as, I am not, I'm not going to do that. And if nobody's interested, I don't care. Yeah, yeah. But it you worked know. for him. I think every, you know, he would just say that by following his own intuitions and instincts, you know, he has had the career that, that he's wanted to have. And I think the same Which applies to, yeah. to acting, you know, because I think actually he got a bit tired of sitting around in trailers yeah. for hours waiting for, I don't know, Jack Nicholson to, to get ready or whatever the hell it was. And... He just decided, actually, what I want to do is I want to do a little cameo things. I'll come in, I'll be in a trailer for three weeks, and then I can go home and yeah. write songs again. Yeah. And there yeah. was a moment he was sort of adopted by the, the kind of new guard like, like, like Beck. You know, Beck put out Odelay, and Odelay has kind of a, chimes very much with yeah. things like Mule Variations, you know, of um, Tom Waits going back to Charlie Patton's house. Yeah. And he just suddenly he came into focus as a kind of godfather for, I suppose, all, some kind of alternative... Music. He's got deep into kind of American primitivism yeah. and, you know, that really kind of dark Delta blues sound. And yeah, absolutely has that in common with that. He's been, a, I think he's been a totemic figure for a generation of musicians. And, and, and by, I mean, I mean Beck, I mean Tom York, um, I, I mean PJ Harvey, mm, I mean the, the, mm. the very best that we've yeah. produced in the last 25 years. They've they've probably all got that in common. They really revere Tom Waits. Yeah, he's been but such it's also, an inspiration. It's, it's interesting what you say though. He's done what he wanted to do because we, Mark and I were talking about this today. You know that uh, that uh, you know people tend to think in the music business it's kind of impossible to to be an artist. Mm. To well, no, there are cases like this. You yeah. Know. I think all those people that we've talked about. I mean, maybe not Beck so much. I feel I feel Beck slightly lost direction but i think pj and uh, uh the radiohead guys i mean they really they it do you know, whether you like do. them or not i think they they've really stuck to their guns completely they seem to be completely in charge of their own kind of creative destiny uh, you get the impression that nobody's leading on them to go a certain direction you know? no i mean wait <laughs> waits his whole thing is like you know he's trying to shake people off you know he doesn't want to be worshipped i mean he's he's um you know, he says the public is like a wild animal. You you can't feed them too much. And I think no. one of the challenges with this with this biography was trying to get a sense of what he's really like, what his life is like as a person, while respecting the fact that he um, has established a very clear boundary between Tom Waits, the the performer, and the guy at home with his with Kathleen and their kids. And yeah. you know, I mean, I I think he's been a really good role model on how to conduct yourself uh, yeah. in, in what he would call the business of show. Yeah, I've just found well, a it, quote here from the book which I really liked, which, which ties in what we've just been talking about. He said, I'd rather be a failure on my own terms than a success on somebody else's. 
is a fantastic thing to say. Well, isn't it a great, yeah. what a great kind of mantra it to is. have. It is, it's a brilliant thing to say. You know, this is him in um, the Coen Brothers film, the, was it called The Ballad of... of Buster Scruggs. Buster Scruggs. And this is actually the... It's the, wonderful. One of the episodes where, yeah, he's panning for gold, isn't he? Yeah. It's, uh, it's just like what Waits is going to be like in, in 10 years. It's very funny. He, he, he's just on his own with, is it a dog? And he just he, he doesn't really say anything. He just mutters and grumbles and groans for about half an hour or something. And it, it, it's just delightful. Well, what else do you think we can expect from him as after his 70th birthday celebrations are out of the way? Well, you know, one would hope that he would uh, release, you know, a, a, another album or two and tour again. I mean, he, I don't think he really likes touring. That's the honest truth. He really doesn't enjoy it. He might enjoy being on stage, but the whole business of getting from, you know, Baltimore to yeah, Atlanta, yeah, yeah. it... it, it, it when you've done that in the way he had to do it, in the particularly in the seventies, I mean, it loses its its mystique, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, when he was twenty five or whatever, he wanted to sound like an old man, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. How do you think he feels about being an old man? I think he's pretty okay with it. You know, I think he's he's aged. Um, you know, I think he's aged disgracefully in the right way. Um, I, I think he's. Uh, I think he's someone really to admire. You know, even if you get on the wrong side of him. And um, I didn't endear myself to Tom and Kathleen by embarking on this book. You know, um, because they just didn't want someone nosing. I mean, I was saying to Alexis before. I knew that things might be tricky when um, I'd, I'd asked Keith Richards. So Keith Richards, as, as some will know, appeared. They are really good friends and and musical kind of compadres, you know. And I I wrote to Keith's manager and said, would, would it be possible to talk to Keith about working with Tom? And and word came back, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure, I'm sure Keith would be delighted to talk about Tom. Um, and then another email followed about two weeks later. Um, I'm afraid the interview won't be happening. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking, well, my God, Keith is only going to say, like, just incredibly nice things, respectful yeah. and nice yeah. things about Tom White. Why would you want to stop the greatest like rhythm but guitar it, player in rock and roll? From, very controlling. You talk about this circle of trust, don't you? That she's put this kind of ring fence around her, and it's quite hard to yeah. To get and into it's, it. obviously it was frustrating. I mean, I did get to speak to a lot of people who work with with the Waitses, um, but I did. I sort of thought. I mean, actually, I just I. I had a begrudging respect for this. I thought, you know, yeah. more power yeah. to you. You know, just keep this stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, not secret, but but I think Waits has seen the damage that that. Um, I mean, it's interesting to be talking about him. I mean, in some ways, he's like the the anti Elton John. You know, it's just such a, such a different career path. But he's seen the damage that a lot of artists and entertainers have done by bearing all. Yeah. yeah. By giving everything away. By by. Um, making their lives part of their product. Yeah, it also destroys the mystery, doesn't it? And it does Although he did, the again, mystery. in the book, he talks about the idea that he thinks truth is very overrated. He'd read, <laughs> a, he'd read a lot of chronicles by Bob Dylan and thought it was made up, and he said, well, if it is made up, so what? Yeah, no, exactly. Your job is to entertain people. They don't yeah, particularly yeah. want the truth, you know. Yeah, I mean, I remember he said to me once, you know, I mean, am I, what is the truth? Am I, am I Frank Sinatra or am I Jimi Hendrix? Or am I Jimmy Sinatra? Yeah. And another thing that I thought I really stuck in my mind, um, and it really made me think, was um, he said, you know, people are so obsessed with knowing yeah. who this song is about, you know. 
And, and he said to me, if I tell you that the Christmas card from a hooker in Minneapolis is about Nancy Reagan, is it really going to change yeah. the way you think about yeah, exactly. the record? Yeah. I mean, it's like, so now you know, but it's obviously not about Nancy Reagan. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, you know, if you know this song is about Ricky Lee Jones, or I mean, so what? Yeah, I, read a, I read a quote from him recently, I don't know if it was in your book, where he says that uh, he was talking about smartphones and so forth. And he said, nowadays people just look up absolutely everything. Yeah. Whereas we used to wonder. Yeah. I miss the wondering. Yeah. And that was a really good point, actually. That you can tidy up every loose end nowadays, can't you? I, I think really that's absolutely right. You know, and he's always been, um, you know, he, like Bill Hicks, has been a, a major opponent of... Of, of great and beloved songs being used in adverts. You know, he said he, he really resented it when um, he could no longer listen to Good Vibrations without thinking of sun-kissed orange juice. Yeah. 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 And I knew what he meant. That's fair enough. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, yeah, popular music has been, you know, commodified and corrupted by a large... There's a wonderful, wonderful quote that we, we both really liked mm. in, the, in the book. Said, uh, you described him as being as important an American artist as anyone the 20th century has produced, mm. which is terrific. Or the 21st century. Or the 21st that, century. You know, yeah. So I mean, why, what would you add to that? Why, why, why did you arrive at that conclusion? I think he is a genuinely great artist, you know. Um, you know, that in a way that transcends, you know... Pop music, rock, rock and roll. I think he's done things that take the form into a new, a new kind of realm, really, of of sort of performance art in a way, yeah. you know. Um, and I just, I mean, look at the end of the day, I just think his music is, I just think it's really great, you know. Whether he's whether he's doing the um, extraordinarily. Uh, powerful, more aggressive kind of stuff like 16 shells from a 30-06, going out west, etc. That 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 or hoist that rag, that incredible song. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Mark I mean, Rebo, when he yeah. he came out, you had the pictures from the Hammersmith Odeon show. It was amazing. Amazing. The only show he's yeah. done in in London in what 30 years or something. And I know Tom York was there and a lot of people were there. And he came on and they did hoist that rag, and it was just like we were just all flattened by the yeah, power of that thing and then he can sit down and play take it with me or indeed sometimes still plays tom Trowbert's blues and the, the the tenderness the compassion that he has for i think you know human beings who are disregarded by society and we live in a we live in a city now where there are you know more homeless people on the streets in this cold weather than i've than i've seen in a long time and the, Tom is singing about those people. He's singing about the people that have been just... Um, they've just been uh, kicked out of normal life and forgotten. And uh, that's what, in a sense, what he's always written about. And I, and I think there's so much, in a way that's never sentimental, there's just so much um, compassion and heart in, in his... Even in his angriest music... Um, that he um, he he occupies a, a completely singular and unique place. I think in the landscape. I don't think there's anyone else that you could really no, compare no him equivalent. to. No you can equivalent. say he's as good as the obvious names, um, and I think he is. But he's just carved out this unique spot for mm. Tom Waits. I think. Mm. Well, happy birthday to him. Happy <laughs> birthday, Tom. And. Uh, 
Thanks very much, Barney Hoskins. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.